Well, good morning, church. All right. Um, he is risen. Absolutely. Um, okay, we've got um, a couple of things to let you guys know about that are kind of, uh, well, in, in amazing to see how God is working. One is, um, we have been a part of a team of churches over the last, um, actually, probably a couple of years that has been working. There's a church, the Mayflower Church um, has a church in China, an underground church in China, and they were experiencing extreme levels of persecution, escaped China. Um, and then got chased even from there to another country, and then there got discovered in the last couple of weeks and were arrested um, there. And we've been working um, with many others, including many in, the many in the government and many other churches in our community to try to get them released and to find them a, a permanent home here in East Texas. And I'm happy to inform you that as of yesterday, they are here. They are in East Texas. We've been praying for them for quite a while. And this is quite a miracle, and I look forward to us getting to meet them and, uh, and talk to them more in the future. Several of our staff and uh, leaders in the church went and visited them last fall in hiding, and, uh, and then so we're, we're just excited just to get to be a part of what God is doing there. Um, on a sadder note, um, our own Larry Atkins, um, who many of us know and have loved and been discipled by and raised with, um, he passed away yesterday and is on his uh, on to glory and is once again playing that role. Those of you who know Larry, um, you know he is a uh, lover of Christ and of his family, and you also, if you know him, you know he is a Marine. And, uh, and so uh, he is once again playing that point man role for the rest of us as he is headed on um, to lead us in that as well. So I would love to pray for the Mayflower Church, to pray for the Atkins family, um, and for all of us um, experiencing that loss and the celebration of new eternal life. So if you will pray with me, Father, um, we are grateful for the power of life, and we are even more grateful for the power of eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, teach us that, unwrap that for us, show us how to live in the truth of that. Father, I thank you that you are still at work, and you always are, um, and we can see it when we look. We can hear it when we listen, and I pray that you would continue to show us this. Thank you for letting us be a part of what you're doing in your world. And we thank you for that. Lord, we ask for your blessings, your comfort, your grace um, poured out on the Atkins family. Um, I pray that they will look to you and to the men and women of valor around them in their lives today as they face this time. Thank you that there's such a thing as the church who comes around us in our time of struggle and suffering as well. Thank you for a church that was sending people every hour of the day um, to their, to his bedside, to pray with him and to comfort the family. Um, Lord, I just, I thank you and praise you for that. I thank you for what you've done and what you're doing in your son's magnificent name. Amen. Okay. So, uh, for those of you who were here last week at last couple of weeks, we've talked a little bit about this idea of anointing. And I'll tell you, this concept of anointing has captured my imagination. Um, and I have a microphone, so you're going to get to hear about it some more today. Um, it has really been, I am fascinated by it. I, I, um, as we've continued to unwrap this, this, this conversation about anointing, um, it's really stood out to me. Also, this is Easter, so you're going to have to put your Nancy Drew sleuthing ears back on again um, and be looking for and listening for the celebration of Christ and his resurrection in our conversation of First Samuel as we continue. And by the way, it shouldn't be too hard, for example, the word Christ 
Um, not Jesus' last name, it's one of his titles, Jesus the Christ means the anointed one, as we talked about. That's actually what the word Christ means. And so instead of jumping straight to 1 Samuel again, I want to continue to unpack this conversation of anointing a little more. And where we're going to start is not in 1 Samuel, but in Luke chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 4. It'll be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, um, there's a whole bunch of them in the seats in front of you. You are welcome to take that home with you. Um, or if you want a different one or a better one or something like that, you just reach out and let us know and we'll put one in your hand. Uh, so Luke 4, starting in verse 16, and he, being Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. All right, so let me stop there because as, as an audience, a good Jewish audience trying to understand the correct context and the correct mindset and culture of the people who were experiencing this in the first place, let me let you know what's happening. So the synagogue, in the synagogue meeting, there's a couple of different times and it's in a normal synagogue meeting, um, at least time of Jesus, where where there would be a time when, say, a speaker or a teacher would get up and they would choose in the scroll. It was much harder to find in a scroll because you got to do this number forever to find anything in a scroll. But in a scroll that they would teach whatever they wanted to teach. And people, different people could do that in the synagogue. Also, there was the weekly reading. And, and so that was just whatever, wherever they were in the Torah or in the prophets or in the whatever, that they just kind of turned the scroll a couple of times. And now this is the next passage. And they would do that as they worked all the way through the Torah and the prophets, etc. I would like to think that this day Jesus goes back home to Nazareth where he grew up. So this is this is small town boy gets gets famous situation. Okay, this is this is Miranda Lambert coming showing back up in Lindale. Okay, so this is this is Jamie Fox. And he's back in Terrell. And so everyone's like, oh my goodness, he's back. He's, the famous kid is back. And he's here. And he shows up. And they're hoping, they're like, hey, we'll get some kind of special treatment. It doesn't go that way. We're not going to unpack the whole thing. But what happens here, I would like to think, is that they handed Jesus the weekly reading and said, read the next section. And that this is, by God's ordination, the passage that was set for that day. Now maybe that that's not the case that Jesus requested a certain scroll and he turned in that certain scroll to where he wanted to, etc. And it's impossible to tell, but regardless, here's how it plays out. Verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. See it? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So here we have Jesus. Jesus has now, he's ready, he reads it, he rolls up the scroll, he hands it to the attendant, and he goes and sits down. Now he doesn't, going and sitting down doesn't mean he's done. Teachers in the Jewish world, the rabbi sits and teaches, and typically the, the audience stands and listens. So you can be glad that we don't have that culture here, or you would be the one standing and I would be sitting down. And so this, this is, he sits down, and everyone's waiting to see what he's going to teach from this passage. You can imagine the silence. And Jesus says, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is a scandal. He is proclaiming himself to be the anointed one, the Messiah, which also means anointed one, the Christ, the anointed one. 
The rest of this, this pandemonium that breaks out in this. So as we've been hiking through this, con, this, this, this first Samuel, hiking through first Samuel, last week, in an effort to understand more what Saul experienced with Samuel, um, being, when, when Saul was anointed, we actually anointed people in each service. We anointed um, one man in the first service and one man in the second service, and we did it in the Jewish style, not in the style that we might be used to if you've grown up in church, especially in an Orthodox church, where you know you, they just twiddle a little bit on their thumb, and they put a little cross on your head or something, or they, they, they do that kind of thing. Or, or I was yesterday, I saw actually a, a guy using kind of a little paintbrush type of thing to paint crosses on people with, with oil. That's not that. This is they take a flask of oil and they pour it out on their head. So if you missed that last week, go back and watch it. You can see the, the expression, the odd feeling that apparently it creates. Alan's here. He was one of those two and getting that oil pouring down their head. So both of the men, uh, uh, Alan and Jordan, both kind of gave me feedback throughout the week on this and, and what was going on with them. And so Jordan sent an insight that evening and said, you can't wipe this off. <laughs> like it's, it's there. It, it keeps coming. The oil and the scent would have stuck with Saul for quite a while. So one, as Jordan noted, Saul would be smelling it, feeling it, remembering it maybe for days, thinking about what's going on. It also means that when Saul caught back up with his servant who had been sent ahead while Samuel did this per purely in private, that when he caught up with the servant, the servant would know like, what just happened? You've got oil dripping down your face and off your beard and onto your clothes. What is going on here? Um, uh, later, Alan also gave me some feedback on it as well. He mentioned, you know, how normal it is for us. We, we are used to sitting under a shower and having some stuff, you know, showered onto us like that. But it, I mean, think about that era, unless he literally took a bucket and poured it over his head, the experience of having something poured over his head would be strange to him. And so the idea of somebody pouring oil on his head like this would have been really weird. And Alan pointed out in the passage, it's very clear that, that Samuel starts anointing him before he explains he's going to anoint him. So then you've got to imagine him coming over me like, Saul, I got something to share with you and kind of, you know, puts his arm around him and then starts pouring oil on his head. And Saul would have been like, wait, what are you, wait, stop, what are you, this is the weirdest. And so this, this, this experience would be so weird and awkward for Saul. In fact, I got to read to you um, uh, what, what Alan sent to me this last bit. Here's how he summarized it. I'll bet it stained his clothes permanently and dried very very in all caps, slowly. He was physically changed by the event and everyone he encountered would have been aware of it whether he was dancing and prophesying or not. So here's what's wild. This is, he knew, and remember the, the anointing is meant to show a, vis, a physical representation of the connection with this person and the Holy Spirit. This person has been made into a new person and this is a physical representation of it. It can't be hidden. So the question that keeps coming back to me is, why do we work so hard to hide this? What is it about us? We see Saul do it. Saul comes back. So, so remember, put it in the right context. Everyone in Israel is waiting to hear from Samuel. Everyone is waiting to hear the news from Samuel. We're, we're demanded a king. Samuel says, all right, God's going to give you a king. Everybody go home. Everybody goes home. And Samuel says, goes to by himself, and now Saul has spent 24 hours with the man that everyone is waiting to hear from. He comes back home, 
He's covered in oil. He's singing and dancing, praising God, a guy who never probably, that was not his style to do that. And he stops with his uncle, and it says in 1 Samuel 10, 15, Saul's uncle says, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Again, everyone's waiting here from Samuel, and you just got a full day with him. What gives? Saul said to his uncle, oh, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Everyone is waiting for news, and what he wants to talk about is donkeys? What, what is up with this? What, what if people are more desperate to hear the good news of what God is doing in our lives than we realize, and we will, do any, we will talk about anything but that? Oh, uh, what's going on in your life? Oh, I got a new car. Oh, we're trying to buy, I lost my job, or I'm getting a new job, or you know what, things are tough with the kids, or, or man, what's going on with the family, or hey, well, but we will, I'm, 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 I, hey, you know what, the donkeys got found. Good old donkeys. But the last thing we do is say, oh, you know that magnificent thing that you've heard that God can do? He's doing that in my life right now. Maybe you've heard of God and what the things that He can do. Let me tell you how He's changing me and what's going on with me. This passage has been, as we say around here, stuck in my crawl. How often have I left conversations in which I might have shared what God is doing in my life and didn't? We talked about it in the in-between podcast uh, this last week. Um, uh, in, in our efforts to be proper and dignified, which are, are, again, fine things to be, and to avoid offense, we may miss out or cause someone else to miss out on the power of the gospel. We're supposed to each be radically changed, like Saul, those of us who are Christ followers. Do our families see that? Does our friends see that? Is there clear there's been an anointing? I mean, we, we look different, we walk different, we smell different, whatever. I don't know what it is. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of His Spirit, has actually made us into something new. In this consideration, I wonder if we have people asking us way more often than we realize to tell us something good that God is doing. Back to where Jesus read from that passage in Isaiah. Here's a question. Do I know anyone who is poverty-stricken? Do I know anyone who's poverty-stricken? Who is, who is, whether that means financially or in their heart and soul and spirit, but they're poverty-stricken. Do I know anyone like that and they need good news? Do I know any captives who need liberty? Do I know any blind who need sight? Do I know any oppressed who want to be free? Do I know anyone who's depressed and need to hear about the favor of the Lord? And I wonder, have I introduced them to the one who was actually anointed to accomplish those things in their life? Or if I'm still talking about donkeys. Even in the desperation, I think much of what we're seeing in our world right now, even the desperation and the violence is evidence that there are many who really need to hear about what God is doing in our lives and how dare we stay quiet about it. Maybe us talking about donkeys is why no one believes in anything but donkeys anymore. There are several events that could be considered anointing of Jesus, and I want to look at two of them. Real quick. One is the, the final week of his life, the week we just celebrated, which according to him, Mary anointed his body for burial in the house of Simon the leper. This happens in Bethany. You can read more of the details. I'm going to give you some passages if you want to look this up. Matthew 26, 6 through 13, Mark 14, 3 through 9, and John 12, 1 through 8. But I want to draw attention to the other time that this happens that's recorded by Luke. 
Again, he's in the house of a man named Simon. This has created some confusion. Some people think this is the same event. I don't think it can be. One, Simon in this case is a Pharisee, not a leper. Um, and the other case is this, is, this is Simon, this is much earlier in Jesus' ministry, not the last week of his life. So here we are in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 37. Ready? And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I love that, that his assumption is Jesus is allowing this because he doesn't know. Not because Jesus doesn't understand worship in a way this Pharisee can't fathom it. This is completely undignified worship. This is like Saul singing and dancing and playing the tambourine in his hometown. This is like King David when he's going to be singing and dancing in the street in his underwear. Like this is, this is undignified, but this is extreme levels of undignified. For the Jewish woman, her glory is in her hair. And she gets down on her knees behind Jesus and takes her, washes his feet with her tears and rubs his feet with her hair. This is as humiliating an experience as she could create for herself in front of a room full of people who are judging her, and she doesn't care. She is there for one person, and she is worshiping him with the fullness of who she is, and she is anointing him. Don't you love that the first person to anoint Jesus with oil isn't a Pharisee, it isn't a religious leader, it's not one of his disciples, it's not even John the Baptist, it is a prostitute who is anointing his feet with expensive oil and washing his feet with her hair. So, what restrains us? What keeps us from something like this? Well, the good news is Jesus interprets this moment for us right here with Simon the Pharisee to teach us about ourselves. Jesus tells a story in front of everyone there to the host. Hey, Simon, I got a quick story for you. There were two men. One of them owed a, a debt of 50 days. A 50-day, he would have to work for 50 days to pay off this debt. That's a real debt, right? A month and a half of working with no, fa no pay just so you could pay off this debt. That's significant. The other man owned 500 days debt. So it would take 500 days of work to pay off this debt, a year and a half, not a week and a, not a month and a half, a year and a half to pay this off. And the person who they owed the money to forgave them both this debt. Who loved him more? And Simon says, well, I assume the one who he forgave the most money. And Jesus says, well, that's, you're really clever. Good job. Luke 7, 46 through 47. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he is forgiven little, loves little. I don't think Jesus is saying, Simon, you don't need much forgiveness. I don't think that's his point. I think his point is that Simon thinks he doesn't need much forgiveness. I think maybe what restrains us as well like Simon the Pharisee, is that we don't actually believe that it's stunning that God chose us. I think we think we've got some pretty good stuff to bring to the table. It's pretty good. God got a pretty good bargain on us. 
right? I mean, yeah, he had to shed some blood. But honestly, really, if it had just been me, this whole crucifixion thing was probably unnecessary. He'd just probably gone to the doctor and gotten a finger prick, and that much blood would have been enough to cover my, my kind of little sins, right, that I've rationalized and justified. It's really not that I've been forgiven all that much. I mean, after all, he kind of owes me. I mean, I came to church, right? So he kind of owes me when you think about it, not really that I owe him. We've been, we, we have accepted too little forgiveness and so we love too little. Maybe that's what's going on here. Or maybe you're, you're in the other side of it, and you think that all of his blood, like maybe she did, all of his blood and all of his sacrifice and all of his being raised from the dead would not be sufficient to wash away your sins. In that case, it's the same mistake, just in the opposite direction. We think our depravity, we honor our own depravity above his payment. That's not right either. Somehow we're just especially evil, and that keeps us from resting in him and urging others to come and drink from the fountain as well. Maybe that's us. Maybe we underestimate the level of forgiveness in that direction. Either way, one way or another, we're tempted to accept too little forgiveness, and so we love too little. I know I do. I'll, I'll own chief of sinner when it comes to this. Maybe too often we say we're seeking to avoid being a distraction, but what we're really seeking to avoid is feeling judged or looking foolish. We're so restrained, because here's the deal. If we kind of cover up this whole anointing thing the best we can, if we kind of hide that anointing, maybe our uncle won't ask us what God is doing in our life, and then we won't have to tell him. Maybe if we just keep this hidden, that people won't ask. When the truth is, if God has done this mighty thing in us, if he's anointed us with his spirit and sealed us with his spirit, which is another word again for anointing, that, <clears throat> that this would show in our lives and people would go like, what did Samuel say to you? And then we could say, well, you know, the donkeys. Or we could say, you won't believe this. You just won't believe this. You wouldn't believe it. There's a church in China that we got to be a part of helping rescue. There's this ministry going on that I was, there's this, you wouldn't believe what God is doing. It's really amazing. Anyway, I've wrestled with the report of Saul and his uncle this last week, especially, and especially we consider that we want to revolutionize our congregation back to a culture of invitation, which is something we're not that great at anymore. Even here in the South, we used to be really good at this and we need to get better at it again. Now in Samuel, we're going to get to see how Saul anointed now is going to face a kind of coronation. And I'm just going to tell you, this is one of the strangest accounts you're ever going to read anywhere, even in the Bible, <coughs> which has its fair share of strange accounts. Ready? Here we go. First Samuel chapter 10, sleuthing hat on. First Samuel chapter 10, 17 through 27. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, I'm going to set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot and he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot but when they sought him he could not be found. Right, okay. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Right. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the other people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. 
And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book, and he laid it before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him, and they brought him to presence, but he held his peace. All right, so as I continue to study 1 Samuel, I have to admit, <clears throat> my attitude about Saul has changed so far. Um, I've never really liked Saul very much. I don't know that I like him any better now, but man, do I feel sorry for him. I have, sympath I have begun to sympathize with his plight in a way I have never really done before. Just imagine being randomly stopped at the grocery store, randomly stopped, and some guy coming and going like, hey, by the way, we're going to take another vote on the president tomorrow, and you're going to win. So tomorrow you're going to be president, and by the way, Putin has threatened to kill you. So good luck with that. And there's a whole China thing you got to deal with. You ready? You're in charge. Going to be tomorrow. You're going to be in charge of all. Like, we'd be like, no, I don't. No, that's scary. I don't want to do, I don't want to be in charge of that. I'm not going to be like, too bad. You're going to be, move along. All right, so this is the, this is, okay, God has saved you. And by the way, imagine if the way you're going to be introduced is this way. You're going to be stood up in front of everybody. Here's how they're going to introduce you. Hey, people, God has saved you so many times. This is the deal. God has saved you. So I want you to imagine, so I'm, imagine if I was going to leave, we're going to bring in a new pastor, and I get up and say, hey, God has done amazing things with you people. He's done fascinating things. He has grown us. He's done these cool things, these really cool things. But you know what? You've decided to reject him, so we're bringing in somebody new. I'm about to introduce him to you. How would you like to be that guy? Okay, right? That's not good. God saved you a million times. How awkward. Saul knows that it's him. He's in, out in the crowd going, hey, yeah, they're going to be a, they're going to cast lots today and I'm going to be that guy. And, and then Samuel gets up and says that. Can you imagine? Saul going like, oh, right. There's a gift made for this moment. It's made for this moment. You ready? You already know which one it is. <laughs> this is exactly what Saul does. Of course he goes and hides in the baggage. Would you not find, like, I'm, how do I get out of this whole thing? So that's where we get, then Samuel brought all the tribes, verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot, but when they sought him, he could not be found. He had vanished backwards into the bushes. Imagine at Prince Charles' coronation, they get out the crown, they get out the scepter, they get all the stuff, and they go, well, where, did the, where did Chuck go? Where did he go? He's missing. The, the Supreme Court justice gets up there with the Bible. All right, it's time to swear on that. Well, now, where did the president go? He's wandered off again, right? Verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? This makes total sense. They inquired of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? They're like, um, do you have to be present to win this one? Because he's not here. God, what's the we've, we've cast lots. Is he's not here? What's, what's going on here, right? Did we miss something? And then, and maybe the most, the weirdest moment in this whole thing, God answers them. How did this happen? Have you thought about this? So uh, we've cast lots now, and it turns out it came on Saul of Kish, and he's not here. I mean, did a voice from heaven speak? He's in the baggage. <laughs> How weird would, I mean, of all the things for God to speak out loud about, like this, or did they keep casting lots like, we can't find him. Is he in the pantry? No. Is he in the closet? No. Is he in the baggage? Yes, he's in the bag. Everybody go to the baggage. Apparently he's in the baggage. This is such a, let me tell you, you read this, you think this is just weird and surreal. I think that's exactly what we're supposed to feel. 
This feels all wrong. This, is, this has got to be a joke. Tell me this is a joke. That's how God feels about it. It's got to be. I've rescued you people in this way, and this way, and this way, and this way, and you want a man to be your king? Is you, are you joking? Is, are you kidding with me? You've got to be joking. This can't be the way it's supposed to be. The Lord said, Behold, he has hid himself in the baggage. So the whole crew, verse 23, I don't know if it's all the, like hundreds of thousands of them, just, just the family of Kish. They ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Okay, I have a really good picture of this in my mind because I've experienced something like this. Our son, Mark, who many of you know, he's pretty tall. He's over six feet tall, but he's always been really flexible. And so when we would play hide and seek in the home, he had a habit of hiding in places that you couldn't think he could fit his frame. And so one of he literally would hide in, uh, in a dirty laundry hamper. He would take laundry out, climb down in the hamper, and fold up and pull the laundry in on top of himself. And you would search throughout the whole house, and you're like, we can't find him anywhere. And then here he comes standing up, and it's like a clown car or something like, you, there's no way you fit in that. That doesn't make any sense at all. Where are you coming from, right? This is the, so again, there may be hundreds of thousands of Jews here. Don't picture baggage like a coat closet. Picture baggage as in a field full of baggage. And they all run to the baggage and they're, Saul, where's Saul? And finally someone finds a foot sticking out somewhere because he's, he's running. They start pulling on the foot. Well, they've not seen Saul. Most of them don't know who he is. So he starts standing up out of the baggage. They're like, how much of him is there? He just keeps standing and keeps standing. Like, oh my goodness, what is going on? And on top of that, he's strikingly handsome. So now this moment, picture this moment in your head. Saul is now standing in the middle of the baggage. I, always, I picture him with like some kind of bag still hanging off of him, right? Or something. Some, somebody's undergarments hanging off of his head. And he's standing there like this. And the whole crowd's looking at him. He's totally humiliated. This is the worst moment since he was, I don't know, like 12. Because just 12 is just the worst, isn't it? I mean, that's just, that's just hard to be that age. It gets better, kids. So here you go. So here he is. He's standing there and he's like, uh, and everyone's standing in silence going, we don't know what to do. And what do you do when your king has been hiding in the baggage and you found him? Like, what's the protocol for that? And Samuel captures this moment. Samuel says, look at him. Isn't he great? Okay, it's not exact. Samuel said to the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him in all the people. And he's standing in the baggage. And they're like, hey, look at how great this guy is. And the people all shout, long live the king. We have not changed in 2,500 years. This reads just like an American election, doesn't it? <laughs> like, hey, that last thing, that, that thing that they got, no, we're just not going to pay any attention to that. Well, you caught him saying, what on record? Like, mm, uh, ignore that. Pretend like it didn't happen. He's, he's standing in the baggage people, and they're like, oh, that's okay. Uh, long live the king. By the way, this is the first time anyone calls Saul king. God didn't call him king. Samuel didn't call him king. But the people call him king why? Because he's tall. He's big and tall. He's exactly who they want. This is not God, not Samuel. He's a giant of a man. This is perfect. Exactly the kind of war chief we wanted. He will grow in wealth and significance like kings of other nations. That's what we wanted. He's going to grow with, he's probably going to have lots of wives and great influence like other kings, exactly what we wanted. Yes, he's going to be great in military power and gather up horses. He's going to be exactly what we wanted. This is perfect. 
Thank you. This is exactly what we demanded of Samuel, exactly what we demanded of God. Sweet. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship. Well, bummer. And he wrote them in a book, and he laid them up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. So everybody's got to go to their room and think about what they've done here, as Samuel probably from, Deut it's got to be Deuteronomy 7 that he's referencing, in which God makes just a handful of commands. Deuteronomy 17 says that he's not to be rich. He must not have great many wives. He's to strictly avoid collecting horses, which is a sign of power. In other words, this is who you want, but you know something. God is saying, yeah, you now have a king, but he's not supposed to be a king like other nations. See, here's the deal. The Jewish king is supposed to be a precursor of capital T, J, K, the Jewish king. Not a savior of war, but a savior of sacrifice. A God who draws you nearer, a king who draws you nearer to God. Not a king like other nations, but more like a king who came in Jerusalem, not with thousands of horses and chariots, but on the bank of a young donkey. A donkey, by the way, that he knew exactly where it was, unlike Saul. He rode it to his own death. God is just and right. And here's an important rule. If you're going to be just and right, you must have a penalty for evil. If you don't have a penalty for evil, there's a lot of things you can say about you, but you cannot say you are just, and you cannot say you're righteous. But God, because he is also merciful, creates a plan to pay that penalty himself. God sent his son to a manger, to a donkey, up on a cross, and we begin to see those kingship themes, but not a king like the other nations. No, a servant king, a sacrificial king. And then in one of the most the sweetest moments in anywhere in the Bible, verse 26, Saul went home to Gibeah, and with him went many men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So who are these? What's it like to be a, a man of valor? Here, these are men who have taken the rebuke from God, and they've taken the rebuke from Samuel, and they've, they've been inspired now to stand alongside their anointed king. What a generous thing. Can you imagine Saul leaving this event humiliated? He, he's anointed. He's confused. He smells weird. He's been hiding in the baggage. He's been humiliated. And Samuel, just they make him a coronation. You're now king. Now go home. So now he's got to trudge home, totally defeated. I'm king, and what? who cares? And as he's going home, he imagine the loneliness and isolation that he must feel and the depression he feels, but God inspires a handful of men to come with him, to walk at home with him. What a beautiful, generous, and merciful thing for God to do. To inspire some men to go by his side. Mighty men, men of power and submission, devotion and strength. And I pray for you that you have experienced moments like this. I pray that you have mighty men and women at your side. I do. And I have. Outside of God's Son and this book, the greatest gift God has given me, are these men and women of valor. My wife, my friends, my family, the leaders here, my adult children, in prayer and devotion and sometimes in real time, I have experienced them take up shield and blade to stand with me. And sometimes they take up shield and blade to stand over me while I'm laying there wounded in the battlefield. This is a great honor 
to get to have men and women like this in your life or to be a man or woman like this in someone's life. These are great. When I've gotten to be the man of valor for somebody else, it is unbelievable the honor that comes with that. And I would challenge you, there's a lot more to this. I could spend hours on this and luckily I will get to because this will be a topic that comes up again and again in the Samuels. So this is just a teaser trailer. We'll move along. But I just want you to stop and notice that in the moment of of most humiliation, God inspires a handful of people to come walk with Saul home. What a gift. What about the rest? Verse 27, but some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. You know. Now you know these are the exact same people who were pushing hard for a king. You know they are. They are the same discontent people who were saying, oh, we're not happy with God, we need a king. And then God chooses a king, but God doesn't choose the king they want. You know this is the case. He's maybe he's not important enough. I, I've, I've found over the years that there are some people that just aren't happy unless they have something to be angry about. That's just, that's just the way some people are wired. Not famous enough, not from an important enough family. Maybe he's not from their tribe. One commentary mentioned, this is probably the tribe of Judah. They're all about a king because they know the king's going to come from Judah. What do you mean from Benjamin? This isn't the king I would have chosen. That's not how I would do it. So I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not. No gifts from me. I don't trust that Samuel could do this. I don't trust that God could use Samuel. I don't trust that God could use Samuel to choose Saul. I don't believe. I don't trust any of this. I don't trust God to do any of this kind of stuff. Man, aren't you glad we don't deal with these issues in our hearts anymore? The Bible here judges them for us. It calls them worthless. It's the same word that was used for the sons of Eli way back earlier in 1 Samuel. This is a harsh judgment. They insult him by not indicating fealty to Saul with a gift of some kind. And I love this in Saul. Some commentaries think Saul's being passive here. I hope that's not the case. I think he's being super wise. It tells us in the Hebrew that Saul is deaf to them. It's like he can't even hear them. I don't even care what, I'm not even listening to what they say. I'm not interested in it. Listen, don't let a pig do your math homework. And don't let the discontent dictate value measurements to you. It doesn't make any sense. Just be deaf to them. If you, by the way, by the way if you don't know that these worthless fellows live inside of you and me, what that means is you're just not aware of it. It doesn't mean it's not true. If you don't know who the sucker is at a poker table, it's you. If you don't know who the crazy one in your family is, it's you. If you aren't aware that you have this worthlessness inside of you, then you just aren't aware of it. I'll bet your family knows. I'll bet your friends know that you have it. I know I have it. It's like we need a savior and a king to come in and save us from this stuff. So where is God in all of this? I love Bible accounts where God kind of hides in the background, guiding, inspiring, whispering, pointing out where Saul's hidden. Uh, Is God going to lead his people with Saul? Is God going to do it differently this time? See, the original Adam, he failed when he faced the serpent. How about Saul? Well, you come back next week to hear about it, uh, about whether it's true with Saul when he faces the first next big test. He's going to face a war chief whose name means snake. It's not even very subtle come back every week, you can come back here to South Spring and hear that it's true of, with Jesus. Every one of us have to face this snake every day. 
If you already have a church that you're a part of and you're invested in and it's not here, good. Go there, invest, lead, teach, serve. If you don't have a church family, we'd love to have you come here. Um, We're pretty dysfunctional, but we'll love you anyway. Come see how God inspires us, uh, a few, to step up and come alongside his anointed ones again and again. What a gift. What a savior. What a king to even consider this with Saul. Pray with me if you will. Father, we pray to you. We pray to the Lord, your son. We pray to your spirit. We pray today to Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one, the Messiah, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and the king. We pray to the author and creator of all things, by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created, who came here, who took on the condition of mankind and servanthood, who was announced by angels and demons, recognized by wise men and shepherds. We pray to the one who was followed by ragamuffins, cutthroats and fishermen, prostitutes and tax collectors, who loved the unwanted and who honored those who could give nothing of earthly value. We pray to the one who proclaimed himself in synagogues and on mountainsides and the temple. We pray to the one who washed feet and served bread, who dragged humanity kicking and screaming to the place of the cross, who faced the right and just wrath of you, a holy God, and who drank your cup to the dregs, who accepted with great joy the most humiliation mankind could pour out on him and the mockery of his spiritual foes. We pray to the one who died in my place, who laid down his life in love and took it up again in power. We pray to the one who you proved right by his resurrection and the empowerment of the Spirit. We pray to the King who took on all, all authority and yet ascended to intercede and prepare a place for us. We pray to the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And to him we say, thank you. Amen. If you will stand. Stand in time of invitation and in the honor of hearing God's word. Um, we, we appreciate you very much so being here to, to worship with us and lead and serve with us and to greet with us. Um, we have this time of invitation every week. It's not just a tradition. It's a time we've set aside for you to wrestle with the Spirit and what the Spirit is leading you to. If you heard today about a God who loves you in a way that you didn't understand and you want to put your faith in Him, we want to talk with you about that and pray with you about that. If you recognize there's something in your life that you need to walk away from, maybe there's a commitment you need to make, a discernment you need to pray about, you're welcome to come up here and pray, either up here at the altars or with us or with somebody over in the corner who would love to pray with you about anything. Um, If you know that you need a church home and you have no idea how to start that process, you can come talk to us about that. Or if you've been through that process and you're ready to, uh, to join this church, please come up during this time. Sing. Pray, be still, listen, fall on your face, weep, whatever it is, however it is the Spirit leads you. Let's close with these words um, before our invitation. 1 Corinthians 15, 2-8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The very words of God.